You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. So hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. My name is Mike Carlin. I'm your host. And today I am very excited to introduce you to Beth and Standit. Uh, now, Beth is a lifelong cowgirl. She's a licensed psychotherapist and professor. She has 25 years of experience developing, implementing, and training people in natural leadership, a model that she pioneered. She's trained thousands of leaders and teams from some of the most renowned corporations, universities, and nonprofits, helping them awaken their innate power and awareness to live, lead, and work with more authentic relationships and connection. And that sounds good to me. Her book, The Human Nerd, Awakening Our Natural Leadership, will be available on April 12th. And here to talk about uh, that book and so much more is Beth Ann Standing. Beth, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Oh. Um, you called my book The Human Nerd instead of The Human Herd. Oh, it's The Human Herd. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I have to fire somebody over this. And <laughs> I am the only one who puts these notes together. I'm firing myself after this. It's day. great though. It it it's so funny. <laughs> well, look, it's a Freudian slip um, because I am a human nerd. I uh, will, we all are. I will um, I will live up to that title as you'll see during the course of this presentation. Um, I'm curious though, like where does your your story as a writer begin? Well, I I think my story begins um, with always being a noticer of things. And um, I first and foremost am a poet and um, the book I wrote is prose and it's it's nonfiction. Um, but I see the world through a poet's eyes and notice details and subtleties and um, and I I have very early memories of noticing, noticing things and being intrigued and curious and drawn into them and, um, and, and noticing details that, that when I would point them out, other people wouldn't have noticed. And so I think that's actually my, it's my, the way that I see the world is probably where the writing begins. What's an example of, of kind of maybe an early memory of how you saw the world, maybe just a little bit differently from, from other people? Well, I, I, I write about this in my book. Um, and, you know, I think my story really begins with the animals. And um, I, have, I have a memory, um, I, I think at about like three or four years old of standing in this hallway and, and watching this human interaction, adults interacting. And then I was, and then I had been watching the dogs or, that were in my life at that time. And, and being aware that there was this really big difference between the way that the humans were interacting and the way the dogs were interacting. And there was like this 
there were like these, um, it was like a tunnel that I was in. And I remember, I remember noticing it and feeling very drawn to the dogs and very repelled by what I saw in the humans. And, um, and I, and so I, I became really fascinated in watching animals and watching people and, um, studying nature and looking for, um, patterns and parallels and, and, you know, and, and trying to understand the world around me and what it evoked in the world within me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always think uh, my sister-in-law has in, in her house, uh, this is my sister-in-law, Karen, who is uh, a, a dear friend of mine. Um, she's got this plaque in her house that says, or a sign, um, I'm probably overdoing it by calling it a plaque. I mean, it's not in brass, right? I mean, it's just <laughs> it's like a little saying in her and it says, be the person your dog thinks you are. Yeah. And I always thought that, and I, I agree. I mean, I, there, there's so much human behavior out there that is so vile. But dogs yeah. just, you know, they just, first of all, they always make me smile whenever I, whenever I see one, but I look at even the two dogs that I have and I'm like, gosh, you know, their, their day is not filled with some of the same garbage that, that, that we have to worry about. And they're just like pure souls almost, um, for the yeah. most part. And I, and I think that as a noticer of things that the purity of my own soul just felt the joy of that. And, um, and it, it sparked within me an aliveness that I, that felt so good and felt you know exactly at the core of who I am. And then I observed this adult world around me, you know, the adults around me and it, and it was like this distorted, like describe it as like funhouse mirrors. And, um, and, and, you know, and I, I started realizing like the animals are very honest and very present and they're very alive in every moment. And that very young part of me that, that just felt so fully awake to what was happening within me and around me identified with that more than I identified with this adult world around me that seemed, you know, inauthentic and confused. And there was a lot of stress and tension. And so that juxtaposition that I noticed that at a really young age and I became a student of it. And in some ways, I think that the writing and studying that was a way of escaping. It was, a, it was my own little world, my own little, you know, laboratory that I controlled. Um, and so it was a safe place to be. Um, and it was a place where my, you know, my art and my craft of writing was born. And, um, but it was also a place to hide out. And, um, and I've learned to come out of that world and find a, a way back into the human herd. But I, but I have to say early on writing was definitely a way for me to retreat and, um, and not always in a good way. When did you notice that you had like a knack for writing or, or a talent for it? Any, anyone ever pointed out to you or how did you, how did you learn about this, you know, ability within yourself? I was an early reader. Like I started, I, I learned how to read at a very young age and I learned how to write. And so it was always applauded. It was always um, pointed out to me. So I, I can't remember a time that people didn't call me a writer, Yeah, which was really interesting because that noticer of things, I don't, I, I knew that writing was a, a good skill. I don't think that I realized that this natural gift of just noticing details and being able to articulate them, that that was, that that was, it was not just a skill. It was an innate capacity within yeah. me. So, but very early age and 
um, you know, I was like the kid whose essay got read out loud as an example of how to how to write it and wrote lots of stories, lots of poems. And then um, and then I went and got an MFA in creative writing after my undergraduate, um, which was an incredible three years of of just immersion into that part of me. Yeah, that sounds like a uh, that's a, it sounds like a dream. I would love to to go back and do something like that. You know, time uh, yeah. time permitting. I, I have three kids in college right now, so I don't see that happening anytime soon for for myself. But, uh, I have to say, I I I can't believe my parents like co-signed that idea because it's it's you know poets are not the most marketable uh, in the world and and so and you know and I, I thought about going to law school and I was a women's studies minor and I was really into advocacy and I loved you know reading and writing I thought well that would be a really good place to put it to use in the world um, and then I pivoted and said no I'm gonna go get this MFA in poetry and you know it's like it, it's it would be it'd be easier to say I was going to go become a, like a famous rock star. Like it's such a narrow market in the world. No one reads poetry right. anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it's any consolation, I've had many, uh, many a guest on this show um, who were former attorneys and uh, sort of walked away from that career to pursue uh, creative writing. Oh, beautiful. Uh, so there you go. There's, there's, uh, there's hope even for them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> what, what were you studying as an undergraduate in uh, in college? I studied English uh, literature and I did a lot of creative writing courses. Um, I was really interested in Irish literature um, and contemporary American literature. And then I had a religious studies minor and a women's studies minor. I had a very rough start to college. I, I, I just didn't go, which was, it turns out as a problem. And I was, I was really busy doing other things and couldn't be bothered. And, um, I was just a very lost time of my life and about a year and a half into kind of avoiding college, but, you know, not just trying to be in college, but not really there. Um, I, I woke up and realized, you know, I, and it was actually, it was, it was in a poetry class where I was like, okay, I can, if I can make college be what I need it to be, you know, and I'm studying the things that I love, it, it'll support me having to study the things that the university wants me to study to get right. the degree. Yeah. And it, and I, but I, I had always been a student, but I went through a really rough patch emotionally where it was hard to really focus that part of myself. So but English literature or, you know, it's a literature degree. Yeah. Yeah. And then where is the um, being a psychotherapist come into play? So I taught writing um, at a university level and um, and helped start an MFA program at a university and ran a literary arts center. And I did that for about seven years. And that was, so I, I found a way to do, to, to be a professional poet, which is in academia, but it's a really hard place to be an artist. And, um, and I, I didn't love, I didn't love the culture, university culture, and at least the one that I was at. And, but I loved the students and I loved the intimacy of their, of working on their art with them and what what that did in the relationships and so i found my office hours were starting to feel like therapy sessions and so i decided to go take a um a couple of course graduate courses in clinical psychology and 
you know, I look back on it now and I think I was doing a little running from myself and, um, and there's a lot more to that story, but I, I do think it was a good idea, but I think at the time it was a a little escapism, like a, an escape hatch to get out of the academic, academic situation that I didn't love being in. Yeah. I was curious what you, what might you have been running from? Was it just the university politics or was it from? Yeah. You know, it, uh, you know, traditionally poets didn't, you know, weren't necessarily housed in universities. That wasn't, that's like a newer phenomenon. And um, yeah, that, I mean, it's a pretty cutthroat world. It's competitive and I was doing really well in publishing. I published a book as I was on my way out of, of academia and I was building you know, these programs and the center and working really hard at that. But there's, you know, the, that the cultural divide between tenure and not tenure and where you are in your career and seniority, there's, there's a lot of hierarchy there. And so it's not unusual for people to take ownership of work of younger, Mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, of of younger um, faculty members. And so there was a lot of that. It was very competitive environment. And I, it just did not suit me at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, if you have an artistic soul, that kind of environment is sort of your kryptonite almost. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because most English departments are, are, um, they're full of people that write about other people's writing. And then there's the few poets and fiction writers who are actually creating new work. And so you've got the critics sitting with the artists trying to actually work together in the same culture. And, you know, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd um, configuration. And I think there's just very different sensibilities and ways of being in the world. And so, um, yeah, I found that in, I did go on and teach um, clinical psychology and um, I've continued to teach, um, you know, forever. And, that setting and that, that department, um, and doing it part-time has been, you know, that's a a huge joy. That's always been a joy. So when I got myself as an artist out of, I took the art out of the academia, it really helped that for for me, that was a big change. Yeah. That was my original career path was clinical psychology. I was going to, uh, I was going to, uh, do a PhD program in clinical. Um, that's yeah. what graduate was. I did undergraduate research in, in child abuse and trauma as, um, exciting as that sounds. Um, it, uh, but I decided to take a year off of, of education and I got a job in advertising and I unfortunately never went back for my PhD. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah, it was always one of my, my big regrets is, um, that was my first love. I mean, I knew from the time I was 18 that that's what I wanted to do. What uh, did you love about it? You know, I think it was just the, just trying to understand what makes people tick. Like first and foremost, um, just understanding sort of the uh, basis, the, the, the mental basis of behavior, the mind body connection. Yeah. Um, and then, and then there's, you know, part of me that, you know, I consider to be a healer and wanted to really just help people who were having, you know, some, some psychological issues. Um, I, that's what I want, you know, really wanted to do. And I wound up working in marketing where I was, you know, to be honest, helping people who had some psychological issues. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> Just in a you can take that part of you anywhere you go. As it turns out, yeah. I get to do that too. I mean, I, I, I worked as a, as a therapist for a long time and now I do real, you know, I help people with their relationships with themselves and each other. And a lot of it is workplace setting. And so it, it turns out there's a lot of trauma and healing needed there. Oh God, we're some, some workplaces are just toxic environments. They are, they are just toxic. Um, so tell me about, uh, natural leadership. What is this, this model you pioneered? So that early memory that I talked about with the dogs and then, um, you know, when I was about five or six years old, I fell in love with horses and, um, and that, that studying of the discrepancy between, other animals and the human animal has been this lifelong adventure. And it's taken me into incredible uh, experiences. And, you know, I live on a, um, I own a horse ranch here in Northern California, and I have a whole herd of horses. And I've been um, training border collies with sheep herding for 28 years. And it's been, you know, it's been a core part of my life, partnering with animals and learning from them and all the while studying human psychology and writing about it and, and, you know, learning about that and trying to help others with relationship. And so the natural leadership model takes these core concepts that I've learned from the animals and puts them into some simple some simple terms and uh, ways of understanding how they apply to human life. And they're very basic, um, but they're parts of us that we have um, let go of or have gone dormant because we're so over-focused on thought and language. And you know, it's kind of funny as a writer to say that language <laughs> is the problem. Um, and so I, I try to, I try to, you know, to, to point out that it isn't so much about language that we're wanting to let that go or that we want, it's actually just making room for this mammal part of us that's still very much alive and actually helps us feel more alive when we are in touch with it and attending to the signals of that part of us. And the animals taught me to attend to those signals in a much bigger way than any human teacher or healer or classroom. And so what I've done with people with my horses and dogs and here at my ranch is we do experiential work with the animals to try to wake that part of the human animal up. And that way we could take care of ourselves much better, take care of our relationships and learn how to be group members. Um, and they're, they, the animals have been my teachers. And so the natural leadership model really is theirs. Yeah. You know, I think about, um, you know, we were talking about dogs before, right. And what they can teach us, you know, they're, they're pack animals. Um, right. they want to be outside. Like my dogs are just yeah. want to be outside, right. Running, playing, kind of doing their thing. I get mad when they go and chase, you know, my dog Murphy likes to chase squirrels and I get mad at him because, you know, he runs away and, you know, it creates kind of a hassle, but that's what, that's kind of innate. They, they like to do yeah. that stuff. And, and we, as sort of human animals, you know, we've, we've got our shelter, right? We've, we've got our meals, we've got Uber eats. We, you know, there's so much that we've lost along the way of having to really work for, mm -hmm. for our food, you know, having to, you know, we, we don't have to be 
with people anymore, apparently, you know, we can, we can, right. um, you know, we have social media, we have zoom. Um, not that I'm complaining about zoom because that's how I make a living these days, but, um, <laughs> you know, there is, there's so much of us that we've lost, um, that we need to, to be taught how to regain, I think. And I think I'm hearing a little bit of that and, and, you know, how you're describing natural leadership. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's um, the good news is we haven't lost it. It's actually right there. And it's just um, a, a bit asleep. And so we have to um, flip some switches on. Um, but it, they, we have all of these capacities within us to be able to um, attend to our own needs as they come. I'll give an example we often, our body will signal to us that it's thirsty or hungry or that it needs to go, you know, use the restroom. And most people will admit that they ignore that signal. They ignore those signals on a daily basis. And so if you think about that, that our body is telling us, and you think about other animals who do not ignore those signals, it's just a radical acceptance of self-care. And you think about that we ignore our basic needs and that that's a that is actually our baseline is to live every day ignoring basic needs and whether it's movement or rest or human contact um a drink of water when you need it breathing actually good healthy breathing we hold our breath um we hold tension in our muscles even when our muscles are telling us that they don't like it that they're inflamed and agitated and so and what the dogs show us, and I think it's why people love dogs, and it's actually what children will show us because they're very honest about their needs. Um, they teach us that we never had to give that up and that that is a socialized norm. Mm. That, that, and we start, to, we learn to give that up when we take kids and put them in desks and say, here, put your body here and learn in this. Why, why, why did we decide to do that? Most kids fall out of the chairs at those desks yeah. <laughs> because their squirmy little bodies can't handle it. And so we're very, a lot of our cultures are constructed around the ignoring of needs. And what we love with our animals is that they wake that up in us and we admire it in them. And we, and we actually, have a lot to learn if we follow them, um, and, and as role models. And so my horse herd has been an incredible, um, incredible faculty of teachers. Um, and they, they show what that radical self-care looks like, but they also show what empathy looks like and how to pay attention to the signals of others in order to stay safe and stay together. And, and to stay in a state of ease. And then they show ongoing, consistent, low drama communication to be able to negotiate needs and adjust to needs. And then they show attention to the environment and being able to adapt and change all day, every day as needs change. And we just don't have great examples of that in our human herd. Yeah. And so, yeah, the animals are that, you know, if we can take those lessons and those concepts and elements and, and practices, they're behavioral. And then we get to layer our incredible intellect and language on top of that. It it's, you know, a, a much happier human life. Yeah. You know, you're saying you're talking about kids before, and I have, mm -hmm. I have three, we have triplets. They're, oh my, they're about to turn 20. 
But I remember when they were like really, really young, like before I'd say before preschool and even probably a little bit after you know, they they would they would always want to put on shows with us. Right. You know, after dinner, we're going to do a show. Um, yeah. You know, they they love performing. They love just sitting down and drawing, creating, um, just kind of living in a little bit of a, you know, for lack of a better term, a little fantasy land. But then something happens where like the the after dinner shows just stop. You know, yeah. they get a little bit more self-conscious about um, about their own creativity. It's like it's almost like it's it's no longer watered. There's no more sunshine coming onto it. And I think that is part of the way we socialize, you know, that we're socialized mm-hmm. as um, sort of as, as as our own society here. It's like, you know, you're right. We, we put them in desks. We make them sit down. We we talk to them about you know, math and history. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but maybe the way we approach it, you know, could be altered somewhat. Well, we cut ourselves off from the body. And so the way that we're learning isn't experiential anymore. And, but for, you know, if you look at the rest of the world and you look globally and multiculturally, a lot of learning is done through experience and mentorship. And it's not, you know, the, the classroom with a bunch of desks is, that's only one way that people learn in the world. Um, but what has that done to us? And what does that cut us off from? And it cuts us off from, you know, the body is where we're most awake. And, and it does when the body is awake in that way and all those signals are flowing, the mind has access to so much more. It actually enlivens and awakens the mind. And so it's not the other way around. The mind actually does a lot to suppress the body as it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me uh, about the book, The Human Herd, as opposed to uh, The Human Nerd. Um, like my favorite thing that's ever happened about my book. I'm, I know it's the first time it's happened and I'm very excited about it. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be of service. But <laughs> when did you start, you know, thinking that, hey, you wanted to take all of this stuff that you've, you've learned and, and, and applied into a book? When did you start thinking about it? Um, I've, I mean, this is a body of work that I've been, um, putting together for, for a long time and it's, I've had incredible teachers. And so a lot of, you know, I, I, I believe in multi-generational learning. And so wanting to pass down what I've learned from my mentors and teachers out and putting that out in the world. Um, but I've been teaching, um, cohort groups, I've had students through my business, the Circle Up Experience, who I've been taking through my model for a number of years now. And so um, I just, I wanted to, to uh, you know, to take that model just out of those smaller groups, which are really intimate and, you know, one year long programs and be able to have a wider audience to be able to read about this. This, the book is kind of a hybrid Um in that I, I tell stories, every chapter has, um, a personal story about the concept and, um, and then it has a section that's, um, describes the concept and then it has a practice. So something that you could do to try to bring that concept to life in your own, in your own world. And so, um, I just, I wanted to be able to share, to share that model in a broader way. Yeah. And how long, uh, how long were you working on it for? Would you say? Um, I, th- I think books are working on us before we're working <laughs> on them. I don't know. I think, you know, I also think that, um, people talk about writing a book for a year, writing a book for two years. And 
honestly, I think <laughs> a lot of the book writing process is the like writhing around on the ground, crying, like I am, this is so hard. I can't do anymore. Like, or sitting down and getting up and sitting down and getting up. Like how much time is actually spent writing down words versus all of the avoidance and agony getting to the words. And so for me, it's really hard to gauge, like how long did this actually take? If you were to, you know, look at my computer and it logged when I was actually writing versus all of the drama around the writing. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> it's all part of the story though. Right. Yeah. That's some of that drama and some <laughs> of the struggle, you know, you were uh... right. Um, so, uh, it's coming out on April 12th, um, yes. and, uh, where will it be available for sale? Um, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Somebody recently pointed out, you can get it at target, um, online and it'll be in bookstores and, um, you can also, I mean, pretty much anywhere where you can get books, it will be available. You can find, um, there's a, a page for the book called the human herd book.com. And, um, you can also find me through my website, which is the circle up experience.com. All right. I'll put all of that in our show notes. So nobody has to remember that. Thank you. Uh, but I do have a few questions for you, um, that I try and ask everybody, um, we try to find some patterns and responses. Some of these questions will be, uh, trickier than others. Uh, it's always interesting to see which ones, um, you know, trip people up. Um, okay. I always get surprised, but, uh, first up is what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Uh, Magnum PI was my like favorite, favorite. Yeah, now we're talking show. the OG Magnum PI, right? Tom Selleck. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Cause the new one isn't bad, but there's you know, a new one. There is a new Magnum PI. I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, I know. And <laughs> look, I'm, I'm a big fan of the old Magnum PI, right? You, you've got your, your Higgins, you've got your TC, you've got your, of course, Thomas Magnum. The new show um, turns it on its head a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, Higgins is a woman. Um, oh. And uh, like a former like MI6, you know, spy. Um, but she's- Oh a great, boy. She's a, she's a great <laughs> counterbalance to the new Thomas Magnum. Um, who is played by Jay, Jay Hernandez. I think it's Jay Hernandez. Anyway, the new show is good, but I agree that that original Magnum, um, we're talking loved Magnum, great 80. I mean, who doesn't love the red Ferrari too? Loved I'm, everything about Magnum. I'm from Detroit originally. And so, and he always wore a tiger's cap and yeah. I don't know if that was the, you know, that was like the, the anchor, but yeah, I just absolutely loved, loved Magnum. So uh, yesterday I was doing one of these and someone said Dallas and uh, that. Made oh yeah. I remember too. Dallas. <laughs> Just another great one. Okay. So if we were, if we were following you around uh, back in the time when you were watching Magnum um, or, or maybe a little bit older, you tell me what, what, what year you want to pick, what would we find you listening to? I imagine you may have had a, a Walkman uh, with a cassette player in it. What, what, what's some of the music that you were, you were listening to back in those days? So I, I was really into, um, the Beatles at, at a young age. I, I started seeing live music at a pretty young age. And so I got really into the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, um, early Genesis. Um, yeah, I was a pretty, I was really into Prince, um, just crazy wild about Prince and I'm from Detroit. So there's a lot of Motown in my life. 
Um, yeah, those are probably primary. A Genesis with uh, Peter Gabriel or? Yeah, early, gen like the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway uh, Genesis. Yeah, yeah. I only saw them once. I saw them um, and it was much later. It was 1990, summer of 92. Uh-huh. The Meadowlands in New Jersey. Uh, it was the We Can't Dance tour. They were oh, okay. Um, yeah, that would have been like, I'd, I'd given up on Genesis. Yeah, they were point. a little poppy. They <laughs> played some of the older songs and I'll tell you, Phil Collins was one heck of a front man. I mean, he, yeah. he knew how to work the crowd. That was, yeah. that was a fun show. No, I, I like the older stuff too. I have to say the more progressive, um, or more progressive Genesis, I thought was. Uh, and I had, I did have a Walkman, one of those early, the, the Walkman, but I, I also listened to a lot of records. So I had, I had a record player and yeah, you could really dig into the liner notes if you are oh, yeah. that kind of stuff with uh, yeah. with the records. Yeah. Um, number three is how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen when you're just about to start writing something? It depends on what it is I'm writing. And so when it's if I am compelled to write a poem, um, and sometimes that comes from like an image or something I've noticed that's, I want to start describing, or it just, it, it, it's almost like a craving <laughs> that, that starts to emerge. And that's a really exciting moment. The blank page, like I, it's like entering a, um, like a, a beautiful landscape. Um, but if it's something where, um, you know, if, if I, somebody's asking me for a work proposal or, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of a format that somebody else has, um, asked for, then it's not, and it's, it has less freedom, then I'll sometimes have some angst and I'll notice I'm holding a lot of pressure in my body. Cause I'm like, Oh, I have to do this thing, you know, and it's, it, it doesn't have the, um, the freedom that a blank page for poetry does. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what are some pieces of advice you would offer to an aspiring poet? Aspiring poet or writer or, or both? Well, it could be both. I'm curious about poet only because I know that's, um, you know, you, you just certainly mm -hmm. identify as one, but you can, you can take it in either direction. I think, um, find like really reading a lot of poetry was, has been, it's always been huge for me. And, um, and so, you know, find in seeing what other people do with that form and, um, it really broke down so many barriers and allowed me to find my own voice. And so sometimes it was imitating voice or there were lines that would inspire me like as a launching place. But the more I did that, the more it was like just becoming part of a family of poetry and feeling like it has its own current, like a river. And so it's like becoming part of that is so important. I think for, for artists to become part of the world that their art resides in. Mm -hmm. And if you could travel back in time and, uh, well, if you could write a letter to your younger self and, and sort of send that letter to your younger self, what kind of advice would you give, you know, the, the younger Beth? just general advice or about writing or any yeah. kind of any, any kind of life advice. Um, the, you know, the younger Beth was full of a lot of worry and angst. And some of that was because there were, um, worrisome things going on around me. Um, but also some of it was, 
a lack of faith in my own ability to um to carve out a life where I could meet my own needs and I I think it would be a letter that with, with a lot of message of um of how strong I actually I how strong I really am because I think I had a lot of doubt in that when I was younger and I don't I don't have that at all now so I I grew out of that and built you know I did a lot of healing of my own and so um I think the self-doubt you know the worrisomeness it's like oh yeah like you're you've got worrisome things happening around you and you you're not wrong about those but the thing you are wrong about is that you can absolutely handle it and you can carve out a life where you don't have to have have um those stresses you know in in your world yeah almost kind of just reassure yeah reassuring yourself that everything's going to be okay exactly yeah very yeah. good well your book, The Human Herd, with an H, uh, Awakening <laughs> Natural Leadership, will, will be available on April 12th. You can buy it wherever books are sold, including Amazon, bookshop.org, and apparently Target. Um, uh, Beth, this was a fun conversation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me.